The gospel is such good news that sometimes it doesn't seem real. It seems like a dream. There are times I say, I believe it, but I can't believe it. Sometimes I cannot believe how good Jesus is to me. The gospel story is so breathtaking. The gospel is such good news that sometimes it doesn't seem real. Sometimes it's, it's like a dream, like you're waking up from a dream, like you need someone to pinch you because you're not sure if this is real. The gospel is so unbelievable, so out of this world, so crazy that it seems like you're dreaming and you need Spock from Star Trek to wake you up with his Vulcan nerve pinch. Well, that's what's going on in Psalm 126. Each worshiper in Psalm 126 is saying, pinch me, I must be dreaming. What Yahweh has done for the nation of Israel is so overwhelmingly unbelievable It seems way too good to be true that they need Spock to put a Vulcan nerve pinch on them. They need to be pinched because they think they are dreaming. Jesus is that good. It's true. The gospel is breathtaking. It's unbelievable. It's out of this world, crazy good news. And it never gets old. For me, anyway. I can never hear the good news enough. I need it every day. And isn't it just like God to come up with the gospel and make it so simple? I mean, little children can understand the gospel. Anybody can rehearse it. Anybody can remember it. And so here we are as God's people. We're weak. We're frail, we're not that impressive. Frankly, if we're honest, we're idiots and we're helpless. And what does God give us to strengthen us? Just one story. Just one story about his son Jesus and all that he has done for us. And that one story is all we need. We have one story to tell when our hearts need recalibrating. One story, one message when we need to be comforted. One pronouncement of good news when we need reassurance. And you can word it a million ways, but it always sounds the same because it's always about Jesus. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will remember their sins no more. It goes like that. That's the story. All we have is one story that we rehearse, that we rehash, that we keep on repeat. And that's all we need. Just one story about Jesus and all that he has done for us. And sometimes that baffles people. Sometimes people don't get it. That's all y'all got? One story? You have one song on repeat in your hearts all the time? Y'all sound like a broken record with this gospel thing. Yes. Yes, we just have one story, my friend. In his book, The Life of Pi, Yan Martel tells the story when Pi, a young Hindu boy, met Father Martin, a Catholic 
priest. Father Martin tells Pi the story of the gospel, and Pi wants to know more. He says this, I asked for another story, one that I might find more satisfying. Surely this religion had more than one story in its bag. Religions abound with stories. But Father Manning made me understand that their religion had one story. And to it, they came back again and again, over and over. It was story enough for them. Let me ask you this morning, is the gospel story enough for you? Is the gospel precious to you? Is it story enough for you? Can you say this morning that Jesus plus nothing equals everything? If you are in union with Christ, if Jesus is your treasure, then the psalmist in Psalm 126 wants to tell you the gospel story again, but worded this way. Wake up. God's not mad at you. Laugh it up. God's not mad at you. Fess up. God's not mad at you. That's what we'll discover in this psalm, the wonderful story that God is not mad at us. In Psalm 126, the nation of Israel has come back to that one story, the gospel of God's crazy, out-of-this-world love for his people, and they can't get enough of it. They want more, and here's why. Prior to the writing of this psalm, the nation of Israel was in a pinch, They were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were taken away into exile because of their sin and their rebellion because they turned away from the Lord. They were feeling the pinch of their bad decisions in going after other gods. But now Yahweh had brought them back home and they were saying to one another, Pinch me, I must be dreaming. Now let me show you where I'm getting all that. Look at verse 1. When the Lord, when Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. What the psalmist is talking about here is when the nation of Israel had returned home after those 70 years in exile in Babylon, the events of which are recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And maybe you remember our series in those books several years ago. God raised up the Persian king Cyrus and he allowed the Jews to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. Yahweh kept his promise that he would restore his people, that he would restore the fortunes of Zion after 70 years of slavery in Babylon. And so the psalmist here is going back in time and telling us what it was like for the nation of Israel to return home after 70 years of slavery in a foreign land. He says it was like they were dreaming. They needed someone to pinch them because they thought they were dreaming. They just woke up and found the gospel to be true. I mean, imagine what it was like for them. It took them several months to make it home from Persia. They were on a three or four month long road trip and then they finally made it home. And it's like, wake up kids, we're here. It was like a dream. And that's how it is for us too. We just woke up to find the gospel to be true. The gospel is such good news that it's like a good dream. We woke up and we remember what we were dreaming and we want to go back to sleep because we want to go back to what we were dreaming about, but we realize that we're awake and the dream is real. Jesus is this good grace. He is this merciful. 
the Father's gift of His Son to live and die in our place is so breathtaking. Pinch me. I must be dreaming. That's faith. That's glorifying God. When you can say, it's so good, you thought you must be dreaming. That's faith. That magnifies Jesus. That's how you treasure Jesus in your life. When you can say that the gospel is so good that you thought you must be dreaming. When you can say, pinch me, I must be dreaming. That honors Jesus. It's like a dream. And then you wake up. But you realize it's not a dream. And what do you do? You laugh. And you sing. You just start laughing at the top of your lungs. Look at verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Almost like they were dreaming. And then they realized that it wasn't a great dream. It was reality. They were home. Yahweh had brought them home. It was real, and it caused them to laugh. This was a slap-the-knee kind of laughter, the kind where you're laughing so hard and saying, stop, I can't breathe. You know, when they just keep, you're like, stop, I can't breathe. Tears running down your cheeks, side-splitting laughter. They were texting LOL before LOL was cool. Laugh out loud. Their mouths were filled with laughter because they were restored to their God, to the Lord, to Yahweh. Their mouths were filled with laughter because their sin and their rebellion did not get the last laugh. God's grace did. The gospel is this massive declaration which says, LOL, God's not mad at you. Sin does not have the last laugh. Grace does. Listen, Grace, We ought to laugh more. We, of all people in the world, should be the ones who love to laugh. We should be known for our laughter. And let me tell you, in our staff meetings every Monday morning, we laugh all the time. Maybe too much, I don't know. And in our elder meetings, we laugh. And that's a sign of a healthy church, healthy leadership. Please, don't be so spiritual that you think there is something unspiritual about laughter. You know, Charles Spurgeon was once criticized by a woman for putting too much laughter in his sermons. She said that he was too frivolous, that there wasn't enough gravity. He liked gravity in his sermons. And so, how did Charles Spurgeon, the pipe-smoking pastor, respond? He told her, My good lady, if you only knew how much I restrain myself. Recently, a pastor new to ministry asked me, what's something that you've learned through the years that I should get a grasp on now at the beginning of my ministry? And you know what I said? I said, you need to laugh a lot. Now, you may think that advice is unspiritual and that I should have told him that he should pray more and read his Bible every day, but he knows that. Every Christian knows those things, but what we often forget is that we should be laughing a lot. I go home many days at lunch and I tell Heather, I just need to laugh. And then I watch something on Netflix. Your soul needs to laugh. Do we need to pray? Of course we do. Do we need to pray more? We'd probably all say yes. Do we need to read the Bible? Of course. 
but we need to laugh a lot. And the psalmist tells us here in Psalm 126 that one of the most spiritual things that we can do is laugh. One of the most God-honoring responses to the gospel is that we laugh. Maybe the most spiritual thing that you can do some days is to LOL or R-O-F-L. The psalmist also tells us in verse 2 that they were filled with shouts of joy, songs of joy. Now, why were they filled with joy? Was it just because they missed home and they finally returned home to, to Jerusalem? Not ultimately. Was it because they had watched a whole lot of HGTV while they were in exile and they had 70 years worth of creative ideas on how to spruce up their homes in their city? Not ultimately, no. Was it because their temperament and their personalities leaned towards being happy and upbeat all the time? No. They are happy because of what God had done for them. They are not happy because they all have these upbeat personalities. They're not filled with joy because they're optimistic, sanguine people. They're not full of joy because they're a bunch of sanguine penguins. Their mouths are stuffed and crammed with joy because they have been restored to Jesus. Their joy is based on the gospel, based on what Jesus has done for them. They respond to restoration with joy. So what the psalmist is saying is that all that we contribute to the gospel is joy. All that we contribute to the gospel is joy. Jesus does it all. He lives a perfect life in full obedience to God's law on our behalf. He takes the curse of the law upon himself on our behalf. Jesus does it all. Jesus paid it all. And us? What about us? We just supply subsequent joy. We just show up after the fact with joy. We show up to the party late and all we brought was joy. Subsequent joy. Laughter and joy are the appropriate response to being restored to Jesus. And being restored to Jesus simply means that we have been brought back to what we were made for. We were made to be in fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created that we might glorify and enjoy God forever. Being restored means you come back to the way that God designed you as you were meant to be. The new creation to be in Christ, reconciled, sins forgiven. The gospel enables you to become you as you were meant to be, enjoying God, full of joy, full of laughter. And when some of that laughter and joy gets down into our pores and gets down into our mouths, then people perk up and they will wonder what's going on. What's going on in that church? That's what the psalmist says happened when these worshipers returned home after exile in Babylon. They came home laughing and full of joy, and the surrounding nations took notice. Listen to verses 2 and 3 again. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. They were having a great time just reveling in the gospel, laughing it up, tears of joy running down their cheeks, laughing so hard that they were telling each other, stop, stop, I can't breathe. Mouths filled to the brim with joy, and their pagan neighbors thought, whoa, 
Something good's going on over there. I want to be a part of that. I want to get in on that. And that's what I dream of for us. That's what I dream of for grace. That the 16% of the population here on the Central Coast who have never been to church would see us and say, whoa, something good's going on over there. I want to be a part of that. i got to get in on that. That's what I want them to see. Not a church that's stiff and rigid with a bunch of rules, but one of joy and laughter. And so as I go on sabbatical this summer, I want to return in September and and see that this place is packed out, that the gospel got into your pores and you went to your neighbors and started talking about it. We come back, it's like, we got four services now? Really? Wow. I want the gospel to become your everything so that we can show this city the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that they hear about on ABC because it's Easter and they're casting doubt on his resurrection. Not the Jesus they hear about at the churches that are so uptight. Just rules, rules, rules. I want them to hear about the real Jesus. The one that makes you laugh. The one that puts joy in your mouth. And then what do we tell these people when they wonder why we laugh so much? While we're full of joy, while we're free? We tell them that they can get on this Jesus thing too. And then we tell them how. We tell them that you have to travel the river of repentance in order to get to the kingdom of joy. We tell them that joy piggybacks on repentance. We tell them that they can LOL if they are willing to cry a river. We tell them that being able to laugh in the presence of Jesus all depends on what side they are on. Look at verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the psalmist here now brings us up to speed. In verses 1 through 3, he told us about the joy-filled, laughter-soaked experience they enjoyed as God graciously brought them home from exile. But now he tells us that the nation has lost its way again. It's not that they are in exile again in verses 4 through 6, but they've relapsed a bit. They have fallen off the wagon, and they need to be restored again like they were in verse 1. And he describes his wish for restoration by using the image of a flash flood overthrowing a desert region. He prays that Yahweh would restore their joy and restore their laughter again like a stream flowing through the desert. He mentions the Negeb here. And if you were a geography lover and a fan of maps in the psalmist day, then you would know that this was a desert region in the southern part of Judah. And it was dry as a bone in the dry months. It was dusty, windy, the proverbial cactus and rattlesnakes and tarantulas and the proverbial cow skull. It was the proverbial desert. And it's the perfect picture of their hearts in verses four through six. They are dry. They're empty. They are parched. And they need living water. Now, the Negev Desert wasn't always bone dry. During the rainy season, rivers and streams would flash mob the place and then be gone. Rain would usher in flash floods, and they were so dangerous that they could sweep you away. But in the dry season, it was dry, which is why the Hebrew word Negev means dry or parched. It's like they wanted to name the desert, and somebody was like, how about dry or parched? 
Okay, sounds good. So the psalmist is praying that God would bypass the calendar and usher in the rainy season on their hearts. He wants a flash flood of grace to sweep them away, just like when they returned from exile. The nation thought they were dreaming when they returned home from Babylon. Yahweh's blessings came so fast like a flash flood, and they couldn't believe it. Joy just overtook them. And now in verse 4, the psalmist is asking Yahweh to do it all over again. He's saying, do it again, Yahweh. Let the flood of your grace sweep us away. Let your love and mercy wash over all our sin. Hosanna, Hosanna. Come, Lord, and heal our hearts and make them clean. They want that joy again. And it's a fitting psalm to be placed where it is because in the psalm of ascents, I've told you there are five sets of three and they each begin, each set begins with the nation of Israel or a worshiper in a place where they need Yahweh to come through for them. And so they're asking God to intervene. Our hearts are dry, they're parched. Intervene, flood down, rain down your grace. They want that joy again that they had in verse 1. They have tasted gospel-centered joy and they want more. They can't get that taste out of their mouths. They're, They're craving it. They want to laugh again. They want to fill their mouths with laughter again. They want joy to roll off their tongues again. And the psalmist tells the nation how. He says, joy begins with humility. Joy begins with humility. If joy is the finish line, then the starting blocks are humility. If joy is the finish line, then the starting blocks are repentance. Joy begins with humility and repentance. Those who bend their knees, those who sow in tears, those who repent, they shall reap with shouts of joy. That's a promise from Jesus. If you seek repentance, if you humble yourself, then Jesus promises to give you joy. If you go out weeping for a night, scattering the seeds of repentance, Jesus promises that you will return home with joy. I mean, who knew? The path to joy and the path to laughter is tears. Who knew? The path to joy and the path to laughter begins with tears. You have to travel the river of repentance to get to the kingdom of joy. It's only as we cry a river that the river of delights, in Psalm 36, that it begins to flow. Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. If you return to Jesus and you take refuge in the shadow of his wings, he will let you feast at his house. He will give you drink from the river of his delights. He'll invite you to the table and feed you like you've never been fed before. He will give you drinks like you've never had before. But you have to cry to get a seat at his table. You have to fess up to your sin. 
You have to come clean. You have to be real. You have to give him the key to your closet and let him pull the string and turn on the light bulb and then expose all the skeletons in your closet. In his light, the psalmist says, we see light. In his light, we are free. Now, you might be getting sleepy at this point in the sermon, so let me remind you of our big idea. Wake up. God's not mad at you. Laugh it up. God's not mad at you. Fess up. God's not mad at you. That's what Psalm 126 wants you to do after you read it, to realize that it's not a dream. God is not mad at you, Christian, to laugh it up because sin does not have the last life in your life or in my life. To fess up because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wake up, Grace. You're not dreaming. Laugh it up. Fess up. God is not mad at you. That, of course, does not mean that Jesus is a pushover and that he lets you get away with everything. Ralph Davis said, Yahweh is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. And Yahweh's people tend to forget what sort of God they face. We forget that there is heat in his holiness. No, we do not need to be terrified, but being scared wouldn't hurt. The psalmist would agree. Jesus is not to be trifled with. But Christian, God is not mad at you. That doesn't mean that Jesus is a pushover and he just lets you get away with everything. Clearly, the nation of Israel was disciplined by the Lord because he sent them away into exile because of their sin and rebellion. The whole reason they needed their fortunes restored is because they turned away from Yahweh and in his love he disciplined them. God disciplines his children. He wouldn't be a good father if he didn't. And so I think Mr. Beaver in Narnia just really nails it when he says, Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Psalm 126 is telling us that sometimes we have to lose hope for a moment in order to find our way home again. Sometimes God lets us have our ways so that we realize how empty the promises of sin are and we wake up and we start the journey home. Bob Goff said, sometimes God lets us lose hope for a moment so we'll retrace our steps and find him all over again. And that's the nation of Israel here in Psalm 126. They turned from Yahweh. They were led away into exile for 70 years and God let them lose hope for a while. Meaning, they had a promise. God gave them a promise through the prophets that he would restore them and they could return home after 70 years. But God let them feel the sting of their sin and their rebellion. And in that sense, they lost hope, if you will, for 70 years. For a while, for a moment. He wanted them to feel the sting of their sin so that they would retrace their steps and find him all over again. And what a sweet reunion it was for them. Repentance precedes reunion with Jesus. And what a sweet reunion it is when we retrace our steps and come back to Jesus. He welcomes us with open arms. We retrace our steps back to the one we love. And what is the path back home? How do we retrace our steps? 
repentance. Joy begins with humility. You have to travel the river of repentance to get to the kingdom of joy. In fact, you never leave repentance behind. It's the 500th year celebration of the Reformation. What was the number one on Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg? Number one, this is the very first thing he said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the very first thing he wanted everyone to know. It's that the entire Christian life is repentant. It's not that you repent and turn from your sins when you become a Christian and then that's it. The entire Christian life is one of repentance. It's the continual cycle of confessing our sin and then turning back to Jesus. That's why we have a prayer of confession and celebration in our worship service each week. We want to take time each week in the service to confess our sins, to repent, and then to celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. All of life is repentance. Those who sow in tears, those who repent, those who fess up, they reap shouts of joy. They reap songs of joy. When you come to grips with your sin, when you are crushed by the law's demand of righteousness, when you come clean and repent and then you turn to Jesus, that's when you start to journey home and you reap shouts of joy. That's the Christian life right there. It's Psalm 30, verse 5 on repeat. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping and sadness are night owls, but joy is an early bird. Repentance stays up late, but joy is an early riser. Repentance leads to restoration. Repentance sows its seeds. And when the bag runs out and it's time to return home, all of a sudden there's a crop. Repentance sows the seed and when you turn around, boom, there's a crop of joy already. Next thing you know, you're bringing in the sheaves. You're bringing in bundles of joy and laughter. You sow tears and you turn around and who do you see? Jesus is there. So let me ask you today, Are you in the desert today? Can you get honest with your heart this morning? Are you in the desert this morning? Are you surrounded by cactus and rattlesnakes and tarantulas and steer skulls? Is that a picture of your heart this morning? And you're thirsty for the refreshing floodwaters to sweep over your parched soul. Here's how you get the water to flow. You have to produce H2O in your eyes in order for the rains of grace to fall down. It's repentance. Repentance is the key to seeing the flash flood of mercy and grace sweep you away. Listen to Psalm 126 this morning. Wake up. God's not mad at you. Laugh it up. God's not mad at you. Fess up. God's not mad at you. That can be true of you if you're willing to repent, willing to fess up, really willing to come clean about your sin 
and trust in Jesus. I mean, believe it or not, repentance is refreshing. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Repentance is refreshing, fessing up, owning up, coming clean about our sin is refreshing. Giving Jesus the key to our closet and letting him see all the skeletons in our closet, that's refreshing? Huh? Who wants to be exposed like that? I don't. But being exposed and coming clean is so refreshing. It's like streams in the desert. It's refreshing. Repentance is like a desert turning into a flowing river. I mean, who knew that if you just fess up to your sin and get real with Jesus, that it would bring joy, that it would bring laughter? Who thought owning up to your sin would lead to laughter? We want to hide our sin, don't we? We don't want anybody to know. We don't want Jesus to know. Coming clean with God, coming clean with others, brings joy and brings laughter It brings the flood, the flash flood of grace and mercy over the parched desert of your soul, the parched desert of your heart. In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, after Eustace is overcome with greed and avarice, he turns into this dragon. And when Aslan rips off the dragon's skin, Eustace compares it to the childhood joy of picking away a scab. He said, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. That's repentance. That's confession. That's getting real with Jesus. It hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I mean, didn't you like to do that as a kid? Picking away at that scab? And you finally get to the place where it doesn't just bleed again? Where it's like, it's dry, there's skin. Let me read the whole encounter that Eustace had with the lion Aslan who represents Jesus because it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for sinners like us when we confess, when we repent, when we fess up to our sins. Eustace had been up up all night because he was in pain. He had had a miserable night. He could not sleep. And Edmund woke up early one morning. He heard an a noise off in the woods, and after investigating it, he found out that it was his cousin Eustace who had been turned into a dragon. So Eustace and Edmund are reunited, and Eustace is recounting to his cousin Edmund what happened when he met Aslan. He says to Edmund, Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have been all a dream, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund, with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did. But it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains 
And there was always this moonlight over and round the lion wherever we went. So at last, we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on the top of this mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells. Like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything. I thought if I could get in there and bathe it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I had thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted or hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy or dull compared to, with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other. In new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. 
And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Listen, we're not dreaming, Grace. We've seen Jesus, the real Jesus, the one full of mercy and grace, not the one that comes along with whips, not the one who makes us, gives us all these rules, who's stiff and rigid. We've seen the real merciful Jesus. This is not a dream. Like Eustace, we can't clean ourselves. Sin runs deep. It's in our veins. It's in our pores. It's in our souls. Thicker, darker, more knobbly looking than we care to admit. We can't cleanse ourselves. Jesus wants us to come clean so he can make us clean. He wants us to come clean about our sin so that he can make us clean. That's repentance. That's sowing in tears and reaping joy. That's bringing in the sheaves. Turn to Jesus and let him remove the dragon skin of sin and he will clothe you in his righteousness and you'll find yourself full of joy and laughing because sin doesn't get the last laugh in your life. Jesus does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us and so merciful. Some days it seems like all we know is sin. The thicker, darker, more knobbly part of us. And yet, because of Jesus and in the gospel, you have removed that from us and you have clothed us with his righteousness and we are clean and we are free. We have been undragoned and we get to swim about in the bath of your grace and be free and be who you've made us to be. And so we say today on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, come Lord Jesus and make our hearts clean. In your name we pray, amen.